Hi, welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm Russ Hayworth, and I'm a family business advisor, as well as the host of this show. In each episode, you'll find informative and engaging conversations with experts from around the world, covering a range of topics relevant to family businesses and family offices. The show is supported by Family Business UK, the largest organization in the UK dedicated solely to supporting, representing, and championing family business. To find out more about their work and how to become a member, visit their website, familybusinessuk.org. Right, let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of the Family Business Podcast. I am really excited to bring you today a conversation with Bill Strandberg. We are going to be discussing your readiness to hire a non-family executive. Now, before we get into the details of the episode, Bill, firstly, welcome to the show. Thanks, Russ. And why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, give them a bit of background, how you came to be doing what you're doing today, um, and then we can dive into the questions. Sure. So it's always an interesting question to think about where to begin telling one's own story. Um, but before we talk about what I do or the expertise that I have, I think that the most germane thing here is that I'm in a family business myself. Um it, uh, the business I work in, that's called uh, Strandberg Resource Group, uh, was founded by my father in the 1980s. Uh, it's interesting. We see a lot of different family businesses and their origins. My, my dad is an entrepreneur. When he started the company, there wasn't a, a long multi-generational vision. There wasn't good governance in place. There wasn't um, uh, any long-term plan. The plan was to put food on the table to raise the kids, right? So, I mean, we I grew up in the, the north suburbs of Chicago. And uh, the earliest memory I have of my father is him um, showing up from home. He took the train to commute from uh, the town I grew up in to Chicago and back, and he would come home after my bedtime. And at this stage, he was not an entrepreneur yet. He was working with a firm called Coopers and Librand, which is now uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, one of the big uh, accounting firms. Back then, they had executive search practices, and um, he would come home, and I could hear his footsteps, and I would be excited because I was like, oh, boy, dad is home, and uh, you know, that's one of the earliest memories I have of him. And then, all of a sudden, in the late 80s, he was home all the time. Was, he, he quit his job and decided to hang out his own shingle, and he worked out of our basement. So one of the earliest memories I have is that pivot of all, there's dad isn't around, and then he is around. Um, that said, the, the, what my dad did is he he uh, ran an executive search practice, and the general idea that he the reason he quit and started his own firm um, is this notion that exists in most management consulting practices is that the only thing that we really sell is time, um, our time um, uh, with, with various clients. When you have a big firm like a PwC or uh, a McKinsey or whomever you have behind you uh, that has the analytics in place to determine um, how much uh, the value of that time investment, uh, the more difficult they can be on their clients. Um, and this can be true in uh, in advising on hiring decisions. When you have a client that has greater needs, that extends the life cycle of the contract and devalues the the, the project in terms of the, the the accounting and revenue earned off of that project, uh, and the result of that is that clients get treated poorly. Um, and my dad wasn't a very big fan of of uh, uh, 
not giving quality service to clients when they were having difficult uh, decisions to make. Uh, and he saw an opportunity to, to go create what he, it's kind of a common term now, but a white glove service to help people um, uh, through difficult situations. Um, but as a kid, so to kind of bring it back to my own story, I don't know what any of this means. I mean, I'm, I'm growing up, I'm going through the playground and you, there's these common stories that, uh, I think we at least go through here in the States where you, know, you ask the, your first grade teacher asks what your dad does and people have, you know, my dad's a lawyer, dad's an accountant, dad work, dad, dad build stuff, whatever it might be. Um, I was the cool kid on the, on the playground because my dad was a headhunter uh, and no one understood what that meant, but it sounded, it sounded dangerous in some capacity. So uh, it, I got a lot of high eyebrows, um, but I didn't know what it meant. Uh, and working at that stage at, my line here in the, in the kind of family business cases that it wasn't, uh, we weren't a family business at that stage. We were, uh, it was an entrepreneurial endeavor and there was no opportunity for me as I grew older to sweep the proverbial shop floors. When you're, when you're dealing with executive hiring decisions, the, it, there's nothing a 16 year old can do, uh, in any meaningful capacity. So when I'm growing up, uh, I still don't really know much about the, the the work or service my dad does, and I pursue my own path. I go to college in Wisconsin. I move to China for a while and work uh, entrepreneurially, and it's about 2013 where things really um, kind of take the shape where that leads me here to be on a podcast with you, Russ. Is uh, at this stage, my my dad is in in his in his sixties. And uh, I was at a stage of life where um, I was looking to make a career change. And he said, you know, why don't you come try it out? Um, and this is kind of one of the most foundational moments for me. If you recall, my dad worked from a basement. So it's just 2013. I had worked entrepreneurially in Asia for six years. And my dad says, come try out what I do. And I say, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm convinced to do so. And um, the way you start, as an executive search person, if you're a noob, if you're recently hired in, one of the one of the things that you learn if you're in this industry is our inboxes get flooded uh, with people that are looking for jobs. People unsolicitedly will send you their resume saying, "Hey, dear recruiter, my name's John Doe. I'm the best person for whatever job that you have." And like daily, they just get stacks and stacks and stacks of them. So if you get a new hire, that one of the common practices that my dad did to me is he said, Bill, here's print off some resumes and just call these people. They've unsolicitedly reached out to you. You can unsolicitedly reach out to talk to them. You're, you're a, an executive recruiter. They'll want to talk to you. So I'm. it's 2013. I have this identity of being an international businessman, and I'm in the house I grew up in in my dad's office, in the basement, in his chair, at his desk, reading resumes that were sent to him, now calling these people um, and pretending that I'm some type of executive recruiter. And I have never felt like a bigger fraud in my entire life. Um, here I am, where literally like kind of wearing my dad's clothes and pretending I'm him. And I called some person who was a CEO in transition in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And um, I stuttered through the call so terribly that the person across the phone uh, had to acknowledge that with extreme kindness. Um, I don't remember the gentleman's name, whoever you are out there. Thank you very much. Um, I was miserable uh, through that particular call. And 
at that stage, that's where we've kind of got introduced to what it really means. Uh, one of the elements of what it means to be in business as a family together was that tension um, of who I am um, from from your from, from some of the work you do, Russ. That was kind of my my lim- one of my liminal phases. Um, it was very very real for me um, uh, as we became at that stage a family business. Yeah, I, and that's great in terms of hearing the background and the the story of how um you came to be doing doing what you're doing as you say we'll dive a little bit more into the the details of that role as we progress through the episode i, I want to start the question with in terms of through your experience at, at what point do family businesses tend to get in touch with you to seek your support when they're recruiting executives because we know it's a big step we know that there's kind of a, an element of growth that's needed to have happened to, to need to bring in non-family execs but talk us through that kind of initial contact and, and when families tend to get in touch with you happily so there's a problem that that, that we come across that's pretty common um, that when we work with we work with families, right? That's uh, our firm exclusively focuses on the family space, and um, we got into that sector through a, a variety of uh, angles. But the primary thing that this that justifies the distinct uh, focus on family enterprises in, in an executive recruitment capacity is that there are distinct challenges that families face that don't exist in other arenas and other ownership models. The challenge that we face is that in a nutshell, we're oftentimes reviewed as a recruitment firm. And so the client, uh, the, the family business says, you know, Bill, here, this is what we want to do. We, we need to hire a CEO, a CFO. Here's the, here's the position description. Go find us this person. Um, and if that's where they, if that's where the the client is going to put their foot down um, and say, "This is what we want to do. Go get it for us." We'll we'll, we'll tell them they're the wrong. We're the wrong service provider for them. Um, we're not recruit. We're not recruiters. Um, it, that there's a distinction there that's really important. We're management consultants that advise on hiring decisions. Um, our practice is focused on helping our clients make the right decision, not legally hire a person for a role. Um, and we will work with our clients to go through the process of making a good decision. Um, we're not going to take on a project that will lead towards a, a bad decision. Because uh, bad decisions in, in in executive hiring are <laughs> really bad for a lot of people, uh, right? Like you, you hire, you, there's a lot of stories out there of family businesses that hire a non-family executive. Uh, that's a big investment that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. There's consulting fees associated with that. Um, there's then the person who moves their career to the family business. Um, in most cases, uh, a recruitment cycle for a family process is quite long. So you're not dealing with executives that are currently in transition. They're they're most likely gainfully employed somewhere else. And they need to be convinced uh, to change their career to go work with a family. Uh, and that means a significant impact on their own career as well as their income, as well as their ability to support um, whomever uh, is dependent upon them. 
Um, and for all of that to go through and then fail in six months to a year is incredibly costly to the family. It's incredibly costly to the culture of the business, and it's incredibly costly to the candidate that they've chosen to hire. So we're not inclined to start where our where the, the client most commonly reaches out to us uh, because we don't know the work that the family has done to understand uh, the shape of the project that they're, they're they're attempting to pursue. Some clients, some family businesses have very, very robust governance. They have uh, um, uh, committees on their boards that help them through critical hiring of senior executives. And that's one bucket. Um, there's another bucket of families that have made an attempt at thoughtful planning, but are unaware of the risks associated with, with hiring uh, senior executives. And then there's yet another bucket of uh, families and entrepreneurs. More typically, this is more of an entrepreneurial mistake than it is a multi-generational business model mistake, but no planning. Um, I can think of a client uh, that I've worked with uh, in the past that is uh, in his 70s. There's no board. There's nothing going on. Uh, and he gives me a call and says, hey, Bill, I want to hire a president. And that just answers, that just opens up a whole bunch of questions of why would you want to do that? Um, and why do you think that will work um, as beginning questions before um, I just say, yes, let's go hire a person? You obviously mentioned within the response there around the fact that you're not recruiters in, in the sense of someone coming, oh, we need to fill a position. And you go, right, we'll go. We've got five candidates. Let, let's see how we can get a match. You kind of almost pause and go, how much have you thought through in terms of the the actual process? What response do you typically get from families who are kind of coming to you to go, we think we need to take this step in bringing in um, a senior executive and then almost the the pause button being hit and and sort of taking them through that process in a a much more methodical and and deliberate way? Is that generally positively received? Is it? Talk me through your experience there. Um, sometimes yes. And sometimes no, to be frank. Um, it really depends on the urgency the family has on the project at hand. Best practice for me, this, not thinking about the needs of the family, but thinking about my own, that I need to do a readiness assessment with, with a, with, when onboarding a new client to, to be sure that the, their business has the wherewithal to, um, complete the project that they attempt that they're there that they are endeavoring to complete um so uh, there's there's an element russ of the world of recruitment um that's extremely transactional um i like to say that it commodifies the individual as well as as well as a business a business makes product it has an opening in its organization an individual is defined by their skills and values that they uh that they can bring to a business and the world of recruitment is just about connecting those dots um and that element is kind of its core to what we do. If you're working for um, an agricultural company, we need to find agricultural executives. If you're working for, if you're recruiting a CFO, we need to consider their financial acumen and their and their relevant certifications and that type of thing. However, um, there's some basic questions that we need to consider about the readiness of the family uh, in order to make that higher. 
um, it, we also we also need to look at the ready, readiness of the business in order to make that higher and assess whether or not the uh, the system, as it were, um, has the capacity to enable a new person to succeed. Um, and in my experience, and I've learned some of this the hard way, uh, that the families oftentimes think they are ready um, for making a senior critical hire. Um, but they are sorely mistaken and they make a hire and uh, it becomes a painful process. And the reason they think they're ready um, is, is by and large because they've never gone out on a journey to hire a person um, that's going to come into their business with a significant amount of decision authority um, and, ha- and as well as take up a lot of their cash flow. And, and those two components um, create a lot of difficulty, both for the family and the culture of the business. And if we don't sort that out before we begin uh, going to recruit, go out to the market to find individuals that are suitable for their business, we'll find executives that look great on paper, but will fail uh, in the long term because there's a cultural mismatch, uh, uh, cultural mismatch between the executive and the family. Yeah, and I, I think that's obviously part of the motivation of having this conversation is to, to really explore the depth of exploration that you do with families in order to make sure that this is something that is a positive impact on the family, on the business, and on the individuals involved. Because we've had several conversations outside of the, the recording studio, so to speak, and you know, you've highlighted some case studies before that kind of bring to life the reason that you do uh, things in the way that you you do that. So perhaps we can delve into to some of those as again as we progress through the uh, conversation. What I'd be really curious to to explore as well is how you go about speaking with families you mentioned there's some questions i don't want you to to give away your your entire process but how do you help families to explore their readiness to bring in a senior executive sure that's a great question i'm going to go with a a, i'm going to share a story i think a case study here is, is a great example um, and it's a it's a failure study. Um, so this this is this is one of the things one of the projects that I worked on um, about eight years ago, eight or nine years ago, when I was early in this space. Um, and at that stage, when I go back to the story, when I was sitting at my dad's desk, going through my own liminal phase, um, I uh, we were our firm was not family business focused specifically. Uh, we worked with a wide variety of, of ownership types and a wide variety of industries. But our identity as a family business, um, if you look up, uh, go to our website and you look at the photo of my father and I, you'll find that we look very, very similar. Uh, my sister, by the way, is also involved, but um, it's easier to, to distinguish uh, uh, Kate from, from Jim and I. Um, it means something when you walk into a conference room and you're very clearly a family. Um, uh, there's these assumptions that a large publicly traded company will make about nepotism and and the qualifications of 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 the, of the younger person carrying the suitcase of the older person and that type of thing. Um, it, I, when we, in other words, what I'm trying to say here is that when we became a family business, it was a um, double edged sword uh, in that it cut badly 
when we were trying to sell services to large publicly traded organizations. Uh, but it cut very well when across the table from us was another family. And our foray into becoming um, talent advisors to family companies was in part because the market selected us. Um, one of those early stories was with a business in the upper Midwest of the United States. Um, and it's one of the types of projects that can exist uh, in, in our space is that the reason we were there is that the family had gone through a tragedy. And there's a unique organizational problem. Now, the, the, there's personal tragedy here. Um, and I don't want to seem callous or crude um, by not addressing the personal pain of the family. That I think we take that as granted here. Uh, but what what is interesting, and I, I kind of give this some caveats because calling tragedy interesting, I think is um is 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 a thing that's callous. But it's only in a family enterprise in most cases where a a, a loss uh, of a family member will impact the entire management team. Um, and as a result of that, the entire organization uh, it goes through a tragedy along with the family. Uh, in this particular case, it was two brothers who ran an organ who ran a company, and one of the brothers uh, 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 passed before his time. And the surviving brother attempted to run the business. Um, the one one brother ran operations, the other ran sales. Um, that there's the operations brother who passed away. The sales brother survived, and his initial response operationally speaking, um, was to to assume the responsibilities of his brother as well as his own. This didn't go very well, um, shouldering both the emotional burden of losing his brother as well as the additional job responsibilities um, was too much for the surviving brother to handle, and he ran the business okay, but morale tanked. And it became clear that they needed to hire an operations officer, and, and our firm was selected to come in and do that work. What results is a conversation where we met with the owner and his advisor happened to be his wife. And uh, we started talking about the business and the needs and 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 uh, the problems that they were facing from a business context. And this begins to take shape and we can imagine the position and how it will fit within their org chart. And this question comes up where they have um, next gens in the business. This is a G3 business. The, the, the two brothers that are in management um, had bought the business from their father. And now there's G3s that are in their early to mid-20s, and there's four of them. Um, two from the surviving brother, two from the, the one who had passed. And uh, we ask uh, the brother running the company and his wife about the next gens. And they, we, we hear their story. We understand who they are as people. We learn their names. And we suggest that we want to meet the next gens as a part of this process to recruit a chief operations officer. And the family puts their foot on the brakes. I say, no, 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 no. They're, 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 and no for two distinct reasons. Where, uh, and, and reason number one is business. Um, that they're twenty-year-olds. They don't understand what an executive does. Uh, they're early. They're they're. They're basically interns. They're new hires. They should not be involved in senior executive decisions. Um, and that's not appropriate. And then on the personal front, and the more important run, and more important front, reason number two is they've just lost either their father or their uncle, and they're emotionally distraught. Um, and asking them to take on this responsibility and be involved in this process uh, for, as parents 
they were concerned about what that uh, what they would what that would do to their kids psychologically speaking and the mistake that we made was that we took the business owners at their word um uh, we we understood the perspective that the that these parents were taking about their kids that as well as these business owners were taking about their early stage employees that know in another another context if you're hiring a chief operations officer you don't ask the perspective of a person that's very very down in the org chart so we say okay that's fine um that was a huge mistake it did not serve the family it did not serve uh their business nor did it serve the person that was hired and the reason for that is it should be pretty patently clear, but I'm going to say it anyways, is that we went and hired a chief operations officer without the input of uh, the, the next gens in the business. And that person lasted six months. Why? There's a new layer of management uh, in, in the business, uh, one, but more importantly, this person who's effectively a stranger assumed the roles and responsibilities and authority of either the father or the uncle of the next gens. You inserted a person into the relationship that these people had with their father. Like there's this, this thing that exists for us in families that, um, it's really, really important to understand when, you, when we are recruiting for family owned companies, um, is that, it tends to be the case that if a family is in business together, running a business, um, running a business operation, that day in, day out, the way the family manifests its relationships with one another um, isn't through phone calls. It's not through going to baseball games. It's not through hobby. Um, it's not through social interaction. It's through work. Father and son, mother, daughter, cousins interact in the org chart. And when you replace one of those relationship bonds, day-to-day in-and-out reporting relationships, discussions of profit and loss and inventory that tend to be from father and son or or uh, father and nephew or niece with a stranger. Um, it's that 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 person is capable of assuming the operational responsibilities, but. N- patently incapable of assuming the familial responsibilities. But for the family, they're the same thing. And when you put a person into that pro- into that stage without understanding that dynamic, that person is very, very, very likely to fail. And in the in the case of this uh, business, this this uh, project that I'm unpacking for you, um, the next gens could not understand why their parents had chosen to hire a person to fill the role of their uncle or their father. And they could not respect the person that they hired, regardless of their qual- their qualifications or merit. It was uh, unpalatable to an extreme degree where the, the next gens effectively drove them out of the business. And it was a really eye-opening project for me. Um, one is it really hits, uh, it's not comfortable discussing tragedy, um, of course, um, but it really hit on some of the unique natures that families face. And it's only in family companies where this type of situation can occur, but more specifically where you have these overlapping roles of family and operational responsibility in the business. Um, and it's only in a family company where a 20-year-old should have say in what is going on in the executive levels of the business. Uh-huh. 
And the, the, the highlights a really important point in terms of the different systems that are in uh, place within a, a family business. And you touched on on two of the most important ones there, which is that there's a family system, i.e., that there are family members who are a family together, but also the operational side. And those two overlapping creates a degree of complexity that other businesses don't um, enjoy. I don't, don't know whether every family would agree that enjoy is the best terminology there because it can, can create its own complexities. But it's the presence of those different systems that can sometimes create um, those challenges, as, as you've highlighted with that example. And I guess that the message there is in ensuring that there has been sufficient communication amongst the the right people, I'm using air quotes here, um, which is helpful on, a, on an audio uh, podcast, um, but the, the right people have been consulted beforehand so that they understand the process. They understand why that's happening, even if it's there might be an in, indirect or a direct impact on them, but including uh, everybody that needs to be included, I guess, is part of your uh, sort of initial work with families. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from if you look at this this case study, um, the parents and business leaders that were making those decisions were unaware of the influence that the next gens were going to have over the success of the hire that they were attempting to make. Um, as a talent advisor, it's my responsibility to know what those risks are and to help the family plan for them. It would have made a huge substantive difference if there was time taken with those next gens to respect their role within the business, uh, respect their role within their family, um, and help them understand why we need to go to market to bring someone in to fill this position, uh, to take their input, um, to make them feel respected and included. Um, it does just that it respects and includes them uh, but it also trains them um as you in most cases the there's uh, a plan for these next gens to ascend the ranks in the business they're going to need to understand the whys of uh, critical senior hires and how it's done um by robbing them of that education and not including them in the decision um i'm not saying it won't work but the risks start to stack and the likelihood of failure increases. Um, and it's the role of a talent advisor um, to be able to identify uh, those risks and help the family navigate them. Um, and the role of a recruiter is to fill, a, to fill an open talent requisition. Uh-huh. And that, that brings to mind as well, perhaps as part of those conversations is, families and family members understanding the influence that they may have by being part of the business owning family that go beyond the role that they fulfill within the business or or goes beyond the kind of position in a, a structure chart if it, if it exists and an understanding of that i'm assuming again is a is a positive thing it's 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 present, but it's not necessarily understood all the time. So, so learning about that is a it's a positive thing. Yeah, it's it's a positive it's a positive thing, and it's it it gets people on the same page and and allows um, each person that has both a well 
I don't know if both is the right phrase here because there's multiple angles on this, but every person has a stake in the business, either emotional or business, um, has their voice heard, um, as well has an opportunity to be educated on, on what's at stake. Um, and that process alleviates some of the risk that gets tied to making these types of decisions. Got it. Uh, and so... Uh- what I'm hearing is that preparing the the family and ensuring that they are ready is is a very important and and significant step in terms of making the decision to to hire uh, non family executives. Yeah, yeah, it, it, there is, and I'd like to hit on another angle on this that's a bit more likely to resonate with someone who's listening to this is that it. Well, tragedy strikes us all at one type or another. Uh, the, the likelihood of tragedy intersecting with a need to hire a person is is less likely. A, a more common issue of readiness um, is uh, about it gets gets involved in succession. And I think I, I want to hit on this for a moment, Russ. I, I think of succession in three different ways. Um, there's succession of ownership. Of course, and, and and the transition of shares of business from one generation to the next, that's a legal issue primarily. Um, but there's also other types of, of succession that are important, more important in the domain that I work in. And, and there's, there's, there's three of them is that there's succession of authority, um, there's succession of responsibility, um, the succession of influence. And when you're hiring a senior organize a senior person into the business um those uh, authority and influence and responsibility get uh are transferred to another person and it's oftentimes the, the transfer of those three things the succession of those three things becomes very very emotionally difficult for the person who's acquiescing them um it can be there's there's one of the things we look for when we're when we're when we're vetting a new business is is there a precedent for a non-family person uh, in this role in an, in the organization? Um, in most cases, there's not. Um, in most cases, you have a family member who's been in the business since they were very very young, early in their career, and now they're in their late career, and the the role has taken shape around them. Um, the most common, easy way to articulate this uh, is about money. Um, it's very common if you're in a, if you're in a large enough business that necessitates a chief financial officer. The O in officer um, means that they're of a, a fiduciary to the family, a fiduciary to the business, and they will own the banking relationships. And that means they will expect to sign the checks. They will. It means that they will be involved in investment decisions and will be invested in the. Well, they will be imbued rather with the with the authority to spend money. If you go to the market as a family owned company and you say we want a CFO, but all financial decisions have been made by the family for the history of the business, and you go out and you hire a an appropriate CFO for your the, your business, whatever industry and scope or scale you work on, and you bring them on board and you say, great, now that you're on board, um, we want you to run the finances of the business, but we're not going to give you the banking relationships or we're not going to let you spend any money. 
you have a very big problem. As a financial officer that's qualified, will expect that decision authority. And that mismanagement of expectations is going to create a lot of conflict and it will increases the likelihood that that person will exit. Um, it's normal that the family will view the spending of money as a very, very personal thing. Um, and they're not expecting to have to give it up um, when they go out to market. What they're looking for is someone to assume the responsibilities to make sure that the financial organs of the business run successfully and that they're getting good financial advice from a senior person within the business that is qualified. They weren't expecting to acquiesce decision authority over money. Um, and if that's not probed um, as a part of the recruitment process, um, then you get mismanaged expectations. And there's real market implications here too. This Make the business sizable enough for this to be germane. Let's say they're doing revenues in uh, the two to 500 million, uh, uh, just for just to kind of create an example here. A business of that scope, a financial officer is a necessary function within the business and they will have to they will need by nature and scope of the business to be able to spend money on behalf of the business. If the family goes out and recruits that person and does not address decision authority over how money is spent as a part of that process, um, they're likely going to run into problems with the market because an individual that is qualified to be a CFO um, in a business of that size will already have decision authority over spending money um, and will have will own the banking relationships and they will have that expectation when they come on board. If the family's expectations are different than that, they will bring in a person um, and then uh, on the context of one position when in reality, they're more of a glorified controller. And the result of that will be a person, person exiting. So when we think about this from a scoping conversation from an advisory compensation, it might very well be the case that the family isn't ready for a CFO. They're looking at maybe a vice president of finance or, or a controller or another function that provides the advisory capacity without imbuing that person with authority. Or another alternative, this might be that they do need a person that has that decision authority, but before that authority is imbued in that person, uh, they need to be able to demonstrate that they are a trustworthy employee. So you're hiring a person at a vice presidency level, but part of the design of the position is that they will, upon proving themselves to be a credible and trustworthy individual, be promoted to the CFO title at in a, let's say, arbitrarily speaking, a year's time. Um, that model then suits the family, it suits the individual that's being brought on board, and it makes the expectations clear on both sides and thereby de-risking uh, issues associated with authority, power, and influence. Mm -hmm. And again, that example there brings to mind what you were saying earlier about the presence of different elements within um, this process. Of We've spoken a lot so far about how to prepare the family and the, the need for dialogue and to, to understand expectations so that it, it makes it a successful um, process from the family's side. But alongside that, you've also then got the person that's potentially being recruited in and his or her views on um, that side of it, plus 
the business itself. It, it, there's kind of these different layers of uh, complexity that, uh, again, I'm assuming we're saying it makes sense to create dialogue and, and prepare and, and make ready the business itself and also the person that's being um, brought into that. Go back to the uh, word precedence here. It's it's very very important. Um, it, there's if you have there's there's plenty of family businesses out there, Russ, that have um, n- non family CEOs and and their entire C suite is non family. There's plenty of family businesses that have family owned companies where the family has removed themselves from the day to day operations of the business. A, a, a talent project in that model is very, very different than what we're discussing. What we're what we're discussing here is is situations where the family's still engaged in the operations of the business. And there's a a very good question that I'm happy to <laughs> to toss to the this uh, the, the the listeners of this podcast that are particularly those that are either advisors um, or uh, family owners themselves. Um, if you're an owner operator in a business, what specifically is your job? What are your responsibilities? Draw them out. It's a very interesting question to ask because in most cases, the family owner employees are comfortable with ambiguity in defining their roles and responsibilities. Um, you can, you can build a set of questions around this. You can also ask how their success is measured. And you can also get into how they are compensated, um, and take those three questions: like, what is you, what is your, what are, what are your job responsibilities? How is your success measured, and how are you compensated? And those three questions are become extremely important if you're going to hire someone, right? Like if you're going to say, you know, if you have a family CEO, for example, or a chief financial officer, this would also be true if you're talking with someone in a director level position. If you're going to recruit someone in, you can't bring them an ambiguous, poorly defined role where compensation is mercurial and success is uh, up in the clouds and we don't really understand what it means. You're going to need to bring something that is salient and clear and objectively understandable to the talent market so that a qualified person can say, I understand this business, I understand this industry, I understand this job and feel that I can be successful uh, at what at, uh, based on how they are describing success. And I feel that compensation is fair given where I'm at at the stage of my career. That's what the market expectation will be. But in, in many cases within the family businesses themselves, you have individuals that started sweeping their proverbial shop floor at the age of 14, and now they're in their mid-70s, and their role has taken shape around them across the decades, and they've never actually addressed what their job actually is in a, in a document on a computer or on a piece of paper. And if you take them through that process, you'll find that their positional responsibilities are a bit of a Frankenstein's monster. They have financial responsibilities and operational responsibilities and human resources responsibilities and sales responsibilities all combined into one. And if you go then and say, well, that individual is retiring or is is going to be exiting the business for whatever reason, and the assumption is that you're going to recreate the position that they held in terms of responsibility and authority, um, the, the, the sour news for you is that won't work. 
that person is not recreatable um, in terms of a, a operationally speaking, right? I mean, not, they're not recreatable in any faction for that matter. What you're going to need to do is redesign positions so that they're suitable uh, for new people to take. And that's going to mean defining what the responsibilities are, uh, defining how success is achieved, and establishing market-appropriate compensation. If they don't do that, again, uh, the risk of uh, a failed hire goes a lot higher. Mm -hmm. And again, I guess what you're speaking to there is the importance of having clarity over where on the um, org chart or structure chart someone might be being recruited into their job description, but also the, the job descriptions of of everybody within the organization. Because again, I've, I've come across examples before where I've asked that question, do, do you have documented job descriptions and, and an org chart? And the, the response has come back, yes, we do. And I've gone, but for everybody, and they've gone, well, yeah, everybody other than family. Mm -hmm. And then there's no, there's not been the necessity at that stage for them to go through that sort of detail of what the job roles are, because as you say, people have kind of come to it from um, work experience in some respects right the way through to, to positions of authority. But if you're bringing somebody in who has a position of authority and they have a well-defined role, to have other people that are within that org chart that don't have any sort of clear idea as to what their job description actually is, it's creating potential future challenges, right? Absolutely. Going through the process of defining someone's roles and responsibilities, particularly for family members, can be a bit painful um, for a number of different reasons, but it's fantastic operational hygiene. Um, it helps people understand what they're doing with their time and why and how to achieve success. It helps create clarity uh, and in compensation structure. It helps people understand their value in a business. And importantly, it helps the business understand a person's value, which are different things. Um, it can oftentimes be overlooked um, uh, when a business does not need to go to market to hire very often. Um, and there's an element here that tends to be true. It's, it's a, most often a great trait of family-owned companies that they have fantastic employee loyalty and you have many, many, many legacy employees that have been in an organization, been with the family for 10, 20, 30 years. You even find it's common to find multi-generational employees of family companies where you know someone's parents worked at the same business that they are now working at. And it's all kind of one multi-generational family partnership. Um, that's great. And it's great when that happens. But when you have those long-term relationships, there tends to be this case where that operational hygiene that I've used, that word I used before gets neglected because it hasn't been necessary. Kind of a weird thing, um, day in, day out, to ask a person you've been working with 30 years about what their job is and what they do, because everyone kind of implicitly knows. Um, but a new person to the business won't implicitly know, and we will need to explicitly tell them. And the moment that we can't do that is the moment that the risk starts to increase. That makes perfect sense. I, lo I love the phrase uh, operational hygiene as well, because it's a, it, that's an inherently positive 
um, phrase. I, I know some people might see hygiene as being too clinical, but I, I think <laughs> in terms of the, the operational element of it to, to help to create more around that continuity piece of the business and understanding where sort of control and uh, decision-making is happening. If mm-hmm. you're bringing somebody senior into the business, again, part of that um, understanding from the person being brought in is that they would be able to influence some of those decisions. So if the family themselves are clear on what decisions do we want to have specifically f- for family members, which are those are we willing to delegate to our uh, senior exec- executives, helps everybody have a much better experience when they're brought in because the cultural shock for want of a better phrase of coming into a family organization when perhaps someone hasn't been in that environment before um laying the foundation for that early in the process is going to be more beneficial than it being a surprise once people are on board oh absolutely um there's a whole level of readiness that's that's germane to discuss here is not about the family at all uh, but about the employees of the business that that the family depends upon for success um, it is uh, incredibly common, I've stated this just a moment ago, that you have legacy employees in, in a business. Um, it, it's, it's common that you have um, people that have worked and been raised in the business along, alongside the current generation of family leadership. And then if, a fam- if the family, by nature of circumstance, decides to recruit from outside, and bring in a person who's uh, new and unknown to the business and imbue them with authority and influence, it's natural that your legacy employees are going to be very discomfort, very uncomfortable with, uh, with that decision. Um, and it's going to create a lot of concern. And this, by the way, is true in any business when you're talking about succession of authority, uh, regardless of ownership model, when, employees find out that there's a new sheriff in town the assumption is going to be that people are going to lose their jobs that that new sheriff is going to bring in his or her own new people um that there's going to be a change in power and a new regime is going to come in with that new person now that might not be true and in most cases it is not true uh it's advisable in in, to a significant degree that 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 uh, the person who's hired not go through a whole bunch of terminations and hires in year one, um, but it's it should be expected that that will be your legacy employee's number one concern. Clarity for the family is just as important um, as clarity for employees. It might even be more important for clarity for employees. As if you ha- if the employees in the business lose morale uh, and you start to then get poor performance or worse, you get higher rates of attrition, it becomes incredibly costly um, in in ways that are hard to define. Where I would take that is there's needs to hire people from the outside for, for any number of reasons, but the family needs to have a, pro, a, a transparent process that articulates the why to the employees, that incorporates their feedback, allows them an opportunity to opt in as a candidate. Um, it's very, very common that an internal candidate will want to be considered for a role. Um, it, these people tend to be not just employees, but friends. Um, and if that's not considered, then uh, you're, you're 
stepping on it's kind of a different system than a family system in some ways that you have an employee system but you also have this network of interhuman relationships that are neither family nor work that we define as our social network within a business and if those social bonds aren't respected or acknowledged and they get stepped on feelings get hurt and we are ultimately human beings and those bridges oftentimes hurt feelings amongst peers um are very, very hard to rebuild. Um, and, and oftentimes once burnt cannot be rebuilt. Um, and we need to consider that and and the business needs to consider that when they're making a senior hire. Um, one of the variables that happens here, and I speak about this a lot, um, it's called a conflict triangle. Um, and what will happen is the family will hire a, a, a new executive and that person will come in with the CEO and, and he or she will say, look at me, I'm the new CEO. In the back of their mind, they're thinking, this business just invested a lot of money in me. And uh, it is my responsibility to demonstrate a return on investment. And so they will come into the new business and they'll say, change, change, change. We're going to increase the revenue of the business or we're going to decrease the costs of running this business. And they'll come in and they'll be dead set on justifying uh, themselves as an executive leader in the business. That mindset uh, will ruffle the feathers of the legacy employees. In almost every case, someone who's been in the business a long time will see that change management coming and they'll feel that they are a canary in the coal mine and they'll call the family. It's very, very common that the that legacy employee has the personal cell phone number of the chairman of the board. That chairman of the board probably coached that, per, that, that legacy employee's uh, junior sports league team. And... That employee will say, chairman, you can't believe what the new person is doing. And the chairman will then get called back in to try to right the ship on behalf of their trusted legacy employee. That is the failure triangle, right? And there's – it's what I find so traumatic about that is it's it's relatively easy to avoid, um, the new executive needs to have an onboarding plan. This is about talent advisory. It's how are you defining success in year one? How are you setting up this person to succeed? What objectives are you giving them? If the objectives are financial in measure, you can expect that they are going to drive and make decisions that, that make the finances of the business look polished and better than they were in previous years. But if the measures are cultural, if the measures are um, meet and get to know every employee at a certain scale of business. I acknowledge that's not possible, but take the spirit of that idea, right? Um, uh, understand the culture and values of the business as a measure uh, of success in year one. Pin that measure of success to the person's compensation. It becomes a lot more interesting. Or perhaps, I love this, we're doing this one with clients, as you uh, set up a, a monthly or bi-monthly survey of employees that measures the, uh, the, the employee satisfaction with the new hire and how they're functioning in the business. Um, ask a series of questions. Is this person living our values? Is this person um, um, demonstrating good leadership? Um, whatever, whatever metrics you like. And then you look at the employee response over time and the thread should be real uncertainty in the first couple of months and through the first year you should see a trend towards certainty that people are comfortable and you tie your new CEO or your new executives bonus in part to successful engagement and endorsement from employees. 
right? That that de- that that aligns your new person and helps the and the owners are defining the family is defining what ROI is for the new person hired, not that person just taking the horse by the reins and making decisions for themselves. On the employee side, expect the family should expect that employees are going to be upset. Someone in the organization is going to get their feathers ruffled by the new executive in the business. That is normal and that should be planned for. The family should have a system that allows the employees to demonstrate feedback. It could be the survey that I've just mentioned, but you're likely going to have a person who has your phone number. Um, The employee needs to know, don't call the chairman, talk to Joan in HR or Right, there's a dedicated email box that you can send your thoughts or concerns to, whatever it might be. And then the promise from the family to the employees is that those that feedback will be reviewed. Um, and then the family needs to uphold that promise naturally. Then the final piece to this is that the family, no matter what process they put in place, someone is going to call them. Someone is going to be able to pin them down at the water water cooler and complain about what the new person is doing and express their fears. And those fears will be real and tangible and you will have known this person for 30 years and you will believe them. Um, And there is the challenge of ownership right there. You're going to need to be able to parse as an owner What's a sincere risk or not? CEOs can fail. And if they fail, it can be disastrous. But many times they are going about their job, working on your behalf, and they are moving you towards success that you would have not achieved otherwise. Your employee that's coming to you with that complaint is expressing a concern about historical precedence and change. As an owner, you're going to need to parse back and forth. So when that person gets you at the water cooler before they start pinning you with their concerns and their anxieties, you need to have a canned answer that says, you know, John, Jane, whatever the person's name might be, I really appreciate your concerns. You need to direct it towards this channel. Um, I can't answer this now. Um, and there, and through each stage of that, by the non-family executive that's been hired, having an aligned return on investment strategy so that they're aligned, their behaviors are aligned with the, the needs of the organization and the family. Um, the step one, step two, the culture of the business, having a channel um, through they to which they can output their stress and anxiety and concern about the decisions to hire a new person and how they're performing. And the third point of the triangle, the family being able to uh, incorporate feedback from the organization and make effective management decisions of their new hire de-risks that conflict triangle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that, you, you touched on it um, a little bit earlier, is around the clarity of the values and the culture that the family are looking to maintain within the business. And again, having uh, I'm kind of making an assumption here that having clarity on that vision, the values, the cultural side is important to be able to firstly understand, but also to articulate to potential um, recruits because they're going to be stepping into that culture and you want to make sure that that's a good fit. If there's confusion in, in terms of what the vision or the the value set that underpin the business, that then that's going to create confusion for that person in their role anyway. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, it's a concern for me if you go into a business and um, you're, you're learning to understand who they are as people and they're not capable of articulating what their mission, vision, or values are. And this is, unfortunately, it's, it's real. It's, it's very common in the family business space is that they are there by the mere fact of their history. Right? Why are you a family business? Because we were before. I worked here. My dad worked here. My grandpa worked here. Um, who we are as a business is merely just a, a, a historical fact. Um, you can't really get them to articulate a vision for the future of what they want. Um, and you can't get them to define who they are as people. Uh, it's my personal opinion when we're looking at, uh, I, I look at family businesses exclusively through the, lane, the, the lens of talent and talent structure, that if you can't define your mission, vision, and values, um, you're not going to be able to effectively manage um, people in your organization, um, right? It's, it, it is the responsibility of a CEO, of a C-suite, for that matter, in any business on the planet, be, be it family or non-family, be it billions in revenue or a local small business, um, the, the, the job of the senior executives in the company is to execute on the vision and values of the business. A better way to say that is to execute on the vision of the business while living the values of the business and, and, and enforcing them. And if the owners of the company can't define a vision, or, or mission, and they can't clearly define what their values are, um, they're not going to be able to give their C-suite guidance on where they want their business to go. Um, and the thing that's so fascinating to me is that every business has values. They don't necessarily have a vision, but they do have values. This might not be able to define them. Um, it's a great exercise for any business to go through um, to define what their values truly are. Um, and how that sets their compass and how it informs the decisions that they're making. If a family can get through uh, the process of, of sincerely, mind you, um, defining them and understanding how their values influence the decisions that they make day in, day out, and how it sets their strategy, their ability to effectively hire people uh, becomes much stronger. I Completely agree, and unsurprisingly, uh, I completely uh, agree, particularly in terms of um, the value for, for everybody involved in terms of being able to truly understand and articulate uh, the vision and, and the values beyond kind of some of the, the more superficial um, elements that ca can creep in uh, sometimes. Um, Bill, I've loved our conversation. Um, I love all of our conversations. I'm glad we've um, got the opportunity to, to record this one. Where can people find out more about you and um, the work that you do? Uh, well, our website is uh, strandberg.com. That's my last name. Um, like many family businesses, I suppose, we, we've named the business after our, after our family. Um, also, feel free to connect with me on, on LinkedIn. It's the only social media platform uh, I'm involved in, um, but it's a good way to connect with my thinking and how I work. Um, and uh, feel free to reach out to me directly as well. I'm very happy to have a conversation and, and help uh, uh, help people understand how I look at the world of business and families and talent. Fantastic. And we will make sure we put those links in our show notes. Um, all that's left for me to say is, Bill, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show and for sharing 
uh, your thoughts and expertise on, on this area. Uh, as I say, really, really enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure the audience will get a huge amount of value from it. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Ross. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode useful, please share it with friends and family. And it would be great if you could leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get found by others who are looking for help and support with owning or running their family business. If you are looking for support with a particular challenge, you can head to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ and find out more about how I may be able to help. Until next time, take care.